93% of your life is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace. Since warmer weather is almost here, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials. I love the new outdoor dining table and chairs I just bought. It looks great in my backyard, and it's the perfect setup for hosting a dinner party. Go to liveouter.com slash thefounderhour to see all the incredible products they have to offer. For a limited time, get 10% off and free shipping. That's liveouter.com slash thefounderhour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. Let's get into it. Welcome to a riveting episode of The Founder Hour, where we explore the captivating journey of Seamus Blackley, the ingenious mind behind the creation of Xbox. Seamus takes us on a compelling odyssey through his personal story and entrepreneurial ventures, from his fascination with physics to an impactful career in video games, including a stint working with Steven Spielberg at DreamWorks, Seamus shares the highs and lows that have defined his path. Join us as we delve into the setbacks and triumphs, learning about the failures that shaped him and the pivotal moments that led to convincing Bill Gates and Microsoft to venture into the fiercely competitive world of video game consoles, challenging Sony's dominance with the PlayStation. We explore the internal struggles Seamus faced during this groundbreaking endeavor and gain insight into the reasons behind his eventual departure from Microsoft. This is not only a conversation about the birth of Xbox, but also about the resilience, vision, and evolution of a true entrepreneurial spirit. Hope you enjoy. So is, is it Seamus? It is Seamus. It's it's uh, Gaelic for James. Yeah. So Sean is John. Yep. And Seamus is James. But Seamus. your first name is what? Was it? Is it Seamus? Well, so this is this is my new first name. Okay. I changed it in the nineties. Okay. Um, because the guys who I work with decided that. Uh, Jonathan, which is the name I was given, wasn't the right name for me. Why is that? I don't know. They just they said it doesn't really didn't suit you. Uh, and I was I was really kind of a madman then, which is not to say that I'm not now. And so they uh, had a contest to see what my new name would be, and I huh. showed up to the office on the following Monday, and everything had been changed to Seamus, and uh, the misspellings okay. and mispronunciations. That would last for the rest of my life began that day. Interesting. I mean, you look like a starting Seamus, with me, but you also look like a Jonathan. I don't well, know. I think that uh, yeah. I mean, I think they did a good job. Yeah, I'm Seamus not is complaining. Good. I think it was a good job. How long has it been your name? You said how many years? Wow, probably since 1992. Oh, oh, 31 yeah. years. So it's it's this, your name. So like, this no whole power that you have, as we get to my <laughs> birth date, I need you to turn it off. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, cool. I know that day because we're both born in 1992, so that was the only power. Remaining. okay yeah don't say that just make people wonder if you have For some sure. kind of like rain man like yeah, ability just, to yeah. i know how base. to like multiply 16 times 17 like real quick damn i don't i don't know the answer i it's think it's a, like 142 or the something. feynman like thing no, 1042 i don't know actually no, richard don't know. feynman richard feynman yeah do you know the story of feynman and uh uh and hans beta no no so in the in the uh in the manhattan project yeah uh feynman was a junior guy and didn't get his phd yet and hans beta famous uh, German physicist who had come over uh, is working on the atomic bomb project. And Beta's thing was he could very quickly do 
arithmetic. He could calculate very quickly, right? So um, when he was working with Feynman, which he often did because Feynman was wildly brilliant and was a really good guy to work with and bounce ideas off of, they'd get to something and Beta would say, okay, well, so that's like the cube root of three. And Feynman would like reach for the calculator that these big mechanical calculators called Marchant machines yeah. at the time, which looked like the old fashioned like mechanical um, like cash boxes that you yep. find like in antique stores and stuff, or if you go like at you know some vintage store somewhere. And Feynman reaches over to it, and Beta goes, "It's about one point seven. <laughs> and Feynman's like, "I didn't even start to think about this yet." And Beta goes, "It's about one point seven three or 1.732 if you want. And Feynman's like, how the hell did he do that? And then he found himself really competitive with this. So mm -hmm. they would start racing to calculate things. You know, it's like, okay, you're multiplying this number by this number, and you notice that it's kind of like this number squared, but a little bit different, and so you can adjust it like this. And if you add them first, it goes like this, and then you get to the number. And, and eventually, after practicing for a couple of years, he could, like, you know, get there about half the time that Beta could. Wow. And they were both just super terrifying to watch because nobody else yeah. could even begin to understand how they could get there. Yeah. But it was like a hobby. It's like you notice things about numbers, like like your birthday, and you happen to know that. And if that comes up quickly because you're thinking about it, then you can use that to know, okay, well, that's yeah. two years after my birthday. So then it's right. my birth, my age plus two. Correct. It's, it's, it's more like, yeah, it's more like reasoning in a way, right? Like in your head, just quickly like associating things, numbers with things yeah. and reasoning that way as opposed to actually in your head doing like arithmetic. Well, I like it as an analogy because it's an example of something that is typically considered to be really tedious, mm. but you turn it into amusement. Like a game. Yeah. It's like fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a little bit like Ned Flanders. Yeah, yeah. Were you I mean, <laughs> I so it. so going back to like your early days, were you like always were you interested in math or just certain subjects or anything um, like that or were you like a good student, I guess, in school? I was a terrible student because um, yeah. I was not interested in anything that the school was showing me. Um and I was interested in everything that could help me do whatever project I had in mind at the time. And so, uh, you know, if I had to learn math to do something, if I had to learn how electric circuits work to do something, I would go learn it. And I really liked that. And I remember being very shocked in those rare times when the things we were learning at school was somehow relevant to something I was actually interested in. Mm. But so, like, what were some I of I had a lot things? of report cards that said so much potential. <laughs> yeah. He's not SMP. applying himself. Yeah. 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 Where, where were you born? I was born in New Mexico. Born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, mm. on a date I will not mention because you will compute yeah, the don't number tell of me. years. So don't we're tell not me. we're not going there. Don't yeah. tell me. Yeah, you can't even post seventeen seventy six. So it was already established, obviously. So you're less than two hundred fifty something years old. So well, New good. Mexico is actually the least the last state to yeah. uh, to become a state. So it would yeah. be post what year nineteen oh five or maybe yeah. nineteen eleven. I can't remember which. So you're less, I, I'll leave so, it as an exercise. So you're less for the than one twenty. You're yeah. still looking good. Yeah, I'm looking good for that age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what were some of those projects that you like to like tinker with or play around with? Oh, um, you know, we had uh, a rocket sled where we we're trying to break the sound barrier, all sorts of bombs, guided missiles, um, rocket motors, uh, computers, lasers, a lot of computer games. We thought we invented the computer virus. <laughs> we thought we invented email, like we always, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, we we were the reason John McAfee, yeah, we entered were, the market, and why he went insane, <laughs> and why he went insane exactly. Yeah. Um, do you yeah. remember life in New Mexico at all? Of course. Well, how old do you think I am, <laughs> man? 
Jesus. You don't want me to know, so. Okay. I got to yes. ask all these crazy questions. Yes, I remember it. It was terrible. We had to walk everywhere or ride a donkey. How old were you? How old were you? Sometimes the pterodactyls would snatch you right out of your front yard. I mean, look, it's pre my time, it looks like. So, sure. Yeah. Um, how, how many years were you guys there? Uh, well, my dad uh, moved a lot. My, my family moved a lot because my dad got a succession of jobs. Uh, my father was an honest guy uh, working in radiology at a time when a lot of radiology departments were crooked. Mm-hmm. And um, looking back on it, it's actually really interesting. I didn't get this when I was a kid, but um, back then, all radiology was film-based, like all photography. And so a large part of the cost of operating a radiology department was processing the film. Right. So radiology departments would always smell like photo labs. Mm. I remember this smell very distinctly when I was a kid. And what it meant was that they were developing these huge pieces of film. I mean, you know how big x-rays mm-hmm. used to be, if yeah. you remember back when yeah. they were like big black pieces of plastic. So there's a terrific amount of reclaimed silver from developing that film because it's silver halide. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these radiology departments were actually just keeping the silver from the hospital right. and cashing in on it. And my father actually wouldn't go in on those schemes and eventually made a stand after we lived in like Phoenix and Wyoming and Arizona, came back to New Mexico and finally was sort of sick of moving and made a stand and actually had the chairman of the department fired and became the chairman of the department. So for oh. my high school years, he was the he was the boss in the radiology department. Awesome. And did you have any aspirations to kind of go down that kind of path or you were just like anyone whose family contains a physician would never consider a career in medicine. Just, just looking <laughs> at it. And so I don't know how theoretical physics became a thing because as far as I can tell it's even less sleep, mm-hmm. but no dying patients. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Did except, you except your own ego? Did you have an idea like when you were young of what you wanted to do like or be when you grew up or Yeah, I wanted to be a jazz musician. Okay. How <laughs> how young were you when you decided that? Um I when I was uh probably uh, in middle school. Okay. Yeah. You played instruments? I did. I played the trombone and the piano uh and I really uh connected with with jazz like Oscar Peterson, yep. Billy Childs, these guys. Mm-hmm. Yep. We could have a podcast about. Is that the Oscar jazz Peterson piano. trio? No, that's Oscar Peterson, the guy. The guy. You know, okay. he had many trios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, yeah, but yeah, there's the famous trio, and um, you know, there's a a, a great um, YouTuber who I, I like a lot who has a show about music. Um, Is it Rick Beato? Rick Beato, yeah, love that guy. Yeah, and I've actually talked to Rick Beato. Okay. Um, and uh like he he was like hey we should chat and i sent him my phone number and he called me and it was awesome because uh you know usually when i talk back to rick biato he doesn't answer but this he did um so uh he but he he had a show about the greatest solo of all time it was oscar peterson right and you should watch that episode of of behind the music because or is it behind the music what's it called i can't remember and um it's the rick biato youtube channel mm-hmm about the Oscar Peterson solo, greatest solo of all time, or something similar to that. Because he shows, you know, it's a, he watches a video of this solo and then analyzes it. And the best part about it is that the two guys playing with Oscar Peterson are also like phenomenal genius titans of jazz. Yeah. And there's a point while he's playing, when they both look down at him, it's like a drummer and a bass player, and they're like, 
holy shit. And so it's a great moment of like geniuses being blown away by a super genius. <laughs> wow. Just, yeah. It's like the Spider-Man meme of everyone just pointing at each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, how far did you go with music? Like, did, did you go all the way with like... You know, I went all the way almost to my doom with <laughs> yeah. music. Uh, and then I realized that all of the guys I respected most... I was going out and seeing, and I was playing, you know, I was playing piano in bars, like underage and stuff. And I had, I had built a recording studio in the basement of a house and we were, you know, recording promos and ads and band demos and stuff. And I realized that the guys I respected most, these 40 year old guys who were like just really great players were like still living with their moms that didn't have a car. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, the, the lifestyle. I don't know if I can do that. Relative to the level of talent and just. Well, the amount of work. I mean, this yeah. is the, the thing that the thing that most people don't understand is that, you know, to play like that, even people who are really talented are just, that's all you do. Yeah, That's just, that's all you do. Um, there's a great quote from Arthur Rubinstein who said that, if I don't practice for one day, I notice. If I don't practice for two days, my wife notices. If I don't practice for three days, the audience notices. Mm. Yeah. Very similar to an athlete, I would say, even very similar to business, to anything you're really it's, doing. It's yeah. really it's really like anything. And so, yeah. interestingly, when I thought I escaped that, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a moron. Right. I'll escape, like, jazz piano. Right. Which is this super rarefied, ultra-difficult thing you have to work super hard at for no reward. Right to essentially the same exact thing called theoretical physics. <laughs> super hard thing that's ultra rarefied that you have to work super hard at that you get no reward for. How did you how did, <laughs> I mean amazing. Like how did, well done. How did you how did you decide that that was going to be sort of your path? It was the same it felt the same in my head and I could do them both. So when you when you were exposed to theoretical physics was it like in high school or when you yeah, were deciding no, when what I to study? The, when I took physics classes in high school and as an undergraduate it was just it was no trouble at all to blow through them without doing any work yeah can, I'm, I'm not a physics guy and i'm sure some of our listeners if not most are not either can oh, you come on man come on man. i mean i know it's surprising you might be it's you don't know it that's true that's, that's that's very, very true, true. Uh, not enough exposure but well, can and, you explain and, and, what it is at awful teachers dude because you know we can yes that's a whole other uh, podcast show well it's it's true but there's so many things and you know math and physics are a great example but there are a lot of subjects where you know when you're in high school when you're in junior high school um, you don't remember any of the material you're being taught. Not at all. I mean, I certainly I didn't because I wasn't fucking yeah. paying attention, but you don't remember any material at the top, but you remember the attitude of the teacher. And if the teacher's scared yeah. or makes it seem weird, you just remember that. Right. Mm. And it feeds back on itself because those teachers were taught by other teachers who were probably afraid. Right. And so you get this whole system where people are just freaked out by math and science. Yeah. It's and, and then it feeds back into media, you know, and, 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 um, Recently, uh, I got a call from NPR who's doing yep. a, uh, um, a holiday, I think it's Freakonomics show, about Richard Feynman. Mm -hmm. And I restored Richard Feynman's van and did a bunch of stuff with Feynman. And it turns out, you know, my wife was roommates with his daughter at Art Center, all this crazy stuff. And because uh, I mean, being a physicist is like being in the mob, like you, you never get out. You, you just <laughs> never get out. Okay. They always pull you back in. Yeah. So, um, I actually told them I, I wasn't interested at first because I'm sick of media who want to talk about famous scientists, but they don't actually want to talk about the science. 
because they assume because they're scared of of seeming ignorant or understanding it that the audience is also scared and so you have this phenomenon and if you look at the imitation game which is a movie about great movie yeah touring uh alan touring or if you look at the the movie about hawking Mm -hmm. um those movies make me crazy because what the filmmakers decided to do was well we can't tell the story of why these people were actually famous so we have to tell another story like oh that he's gay story right like a traumatized oh he's got a disease story and it was weird the movies felt very disconnected because it was like why is everyone paying all this attention to stephen hawking they never tell you why and it's weird because filmmakers authors you know uh other kinds of storytellers will spend a huge amount of time like you guys do for instance on very intricate stories about business. Mm. And you'll take the time to explain to the audience the background, how the business works, why it's important or a legal issue, and you make an interesting story out of that because that's the meat of the issue, right? But for some reason, and I think that it's because of this cultural bias, that same care isn't taken with math or physics. Right. And it's no different. Human why, beings Why do you think do that it. is, though? It's just the fear. It's not it's hard. The fear of what? The, the, the fear... Of fear. It's not, not it's, fully grasping or understanding the concept. It's that you're taught to fear it. I, I remember going on a university tour when my sons were applying to university to, to Bristol University in the UK. Mm-hmm. We're touring around and the tour guide takes us past, you know, sociology department, housing, these different things. We get to the math building and she says, Oh, it's a math building, but you know, none of us understand that. <laughs> and all the parents are like, ha ha ha. I was like, fuck you. Yeah. Wow. Like, what culture are we in where that's okay? Like, if it was China or India, they'd be beating her up for saying <laughs> right. because they want their children to, to be hardcore that. on that stuff. And so how have we got culturally to the point where that's the case whilst simultaneously we worship these tech gods who ostensibly right. have their empires built on science and math? And it's extremely odd. And I, so the only explanation I have is cultural. Yeah. So these filmmakers and documentary makers, podcast guys, are scared of the fact that ev- that it's culturally normative to decide not to talk about that and to skirt around the edge. And you right. miss everything that's interesting. So I told the NPR guys that I wasn't interested in talking to them about Feynman unless they were going to talk about the thing that Feynman himself would have felt was most important about his life because they started, you know, they want to see the van and talk about his crazy stories. Right. I said, well, you can do that, but I'm not going to, I don't want to help you unless you're going to talk about what's really important, which is that Richard Feynman was a guy who, like Oscar Peterson, yeah. even the smartest people who were best would look at the work that he had done and have no fucking idea how it came to him. Yep. It was like angels are whispering in his ear. He was an actual genius. It's a marvel of the human race. Talk about that and I'll help you all you want. For those who want to uh, maybe start learning about Richard Feynman, uh, where's the best place to start? I, I bought a book. Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. Is well, that, that- yeah, that's a that's a book that he wrote with Ralph Layton. Yeah, it was a big deal for for guys like me at that age and and a generation or two before, which was that here is this scientist, and it's a little bit different. It's it's this has changed over generations, but in the 1960s, scientists were very serious. And they're very well respected in pillars of the community. And in the 70s, like they were like the devil. And then the 80s, they were nerds. So all of these are negative. <laughs> and yeah. so if you're a science person, 
you're considered not to be a human being. Mm. Okay. It's, you know, it's, it's like any human racism or bias. Um, you know, and I try to explain to people that if I had a computer desk in my notebook in like 1983 in high school, I had a tooth knocked out because the, the, uh, the jocks were the cool ones, not the nerds. That's how it is now. Right. Back then you get the shit kicked out of you. Yep. Um, and it's impossible for people to understand today, but the decade before that scientists were the devil. And the decade before that they were gods and, but in all cases they weren't human beings. And even now you know, you characterize people who are tech entrepreneurs as being this like super race or something. And we, you know, talk to the Y Combinator guys or Sam Altman, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, it's hilarious because mm -hmm. I know these guys and they're not, they're not gods. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're not even Richard Feynman. Right. And, you know, they're certainly not John von Neumann. Mm -hmm. So, um, when Feynman, you know, came out with that book, which was really, um, Ralph Layton's work, who was the son of the chairman of the physics department at Caltech, who became friends with Feynman and heard Feynman's stories over the years and said, we should record these and then we should write a book about them. And so he sort of took it upon himself to do this. And it became wildly successful because not necessarily so much, I don't think, in my view, because the stories uh, are, are hilarious or interesting or crazy, and they, and they are, but more because here is a Nobel laureate who was like a regular guy. He talks like a truck driver, he doesn't use fancy language. And in the mark of, of real genius, you know, you could be an eight-year-old child and ask Richard Feynman about quantum chromodynamics or, mm. or, 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 or probably not quantum, excuse me. Sorry, nerds. <laughs> you could ask him about um, quantum electrodynamics and he could explain enough that you could get it in simple terms and not bullshit you, not change it to be wrong to sound good. And that's somebody who really understands something. To make something simple, you have to really, really understand it. And a lot of people who study hard enough to be that good are insecure about seeming smart. And so they won't simplify it because it feels like cheapening the brand, right? It feels like you're, you're selling yourself out. Feynman didn't care. And these were extraordinary things. And it was a first for people to hear somebody of that scientific stature to talk like that. Right. And so it was a big deal. And it gave permission to whole generations of people to feel okay about becoming a scientist, to feel okay about being a human, to have human foibles, to like want to go have sex and still be a scientist. Now, Simon was also like a horrible womanizer and did a lot of shit that's not so cool. And you have to, you know, hold that in equal measure. But he also made that important contribution. Yeah. So, so going back to when you're kind of in high school, let's say, and studying or going into college studying physics, uh, you know, you, you mentioned like looking at the folks that you looked up to as musicians and the lifestyle they had. What was sort of the lifestyle that you were looking to have in that field as you, you know, started your career and so on and so forth? Brother, I love you. You fucking millennial. Like, <laughs> um, people in my generation didn't plan on a lifestyle. Yeah. That's you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to not die. Okay. You know, I wanted to not be homeless, really. And I think, you know, coming from where I came from in my generation, you know, we had the boomers over us and they were dicks and they were super uptight but they thought they were really cool because they listened to Joni Mitchell, right? <laughs> and it was fucking terrible. And I, and, I, and I listened to like Gen Z and millennials like complain about boomers and 
how bad I was. Like they were right in our fucking grill, man. And it sucked. Yeah. So I was, you know, people like, oh, you can't buy a house. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right. Same for us. It was, you know, the numbers have scaled up, but relative to what an earning was, it was the same or worse. And like, I didn't have a lifestyle plan, dude. I didn't want no whisper quiet G4. That was not what I was thinking about. I just didn't want to fucking be homeless. Mm. And I got myself into hot water like with with jazz and then with physics. And it was like, wow. So to make the same amount of money as like an apprentice plumber, I have to be a god at contour integration for quantum field theory. Yeah. And it was like those are a bunch of words that don't even make sense. What have I what have I set myself up for here that I have to be like insanely good at a super hard thing that very few people know how to do just to get by? Yep. I'm an idiot. What why like there are easier paths. Why didn't I I become a carpenter? I'm a moron. Yeah. (laughs) Did you did you do you remember having that realization? Oh yeah, everybody had that realization. You get involved in this situation where you are surrounded by the smartest people you've ever met constantly right. and you're competing with them right. for, you know, resources. And then you occasionally, you know, when you leave the physics department or you go out into the world, you, you hang out with people who aren't in that social group. Right. You're reminded like normal people can, can survive without doing this crazy fucking right. thing. Right. And it's, it's wild. And so, it's, but it's an aspect of graduate school and education in general. Sure. You get trapped in a bubble and everyone has this feeling. It's not unique to physics or math or any of those totally. things. But you do, like, you have this realization, like, whoa, like, that woman, like, you know, she works in a law firm and she has a nicer car than I'll ever have. And she doesn't know anything about renormalization. <laughs> yeah. So what, so you have this realization. Do you, what do you do about it, if anything, or do you just keep going down your physics path? Um, well, you know, nobody likes a quitter, dude. No, you, 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 you just go harder. You know, it's like, um, so what is that? What did that mean for you in simple terms for a non-physics person like me, like Pat, like many well, others? Look, man, you know, I think there's an important distinction that I should draw here, which is that, you know, I didn't start doing jazz or physics because I thought it was going to be a good career or because sure. I was looking to achieve some lifestyle. You fucking yeah. millennial fucks. Um, <laughs> I did it because it was beautiful. And I was compelled by the beauty of that pursuit mm. to engage in it. And when it suddenly became super hard and had all the challenges around it, the beauty had not left. Mm-hmm. In fact, the more physics that I studied and understood, the more profound that beauty became. And the kind of majesty of, of and I know this sounds overblown, but the reason that all physicists say this is because it's fucking true. Like you start to see underneath what reality is and you you how you can't stop you know it's like seeing the face of god it literally is and 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 better because you can use that knowledge as a as a predictive tool to to build things and to understand how things are going to work yeah and it's incredibly addictive and so it's a real it's like a compulsion loop mm-hmm. And not to sound ignorant, but what, what is it that you or physicists in graduate school, what is it that you're chasing or what is the, what keeps you going, th- this beauty that you describe, what is it? Like if you could define it in the simplest of ways, because I'm, I'm really curious, I just don't know, wh- what is it that keeps you going? Or And I see it in other okay, graduate so you, students as well, like in other fields, like yeah. they just keep going and going and going. I'm like, and I, I don't understand it. I personally don't understand so, it. So, you know, you know um, it's like when you're, 
when you're playing a game and you you want to get to the end, you want to get to the final boss, you want to mm-hmm. build up all the skills right. you need to get to the final boss. That same feeling. Right. It's when you're reading a book and you can't put it down because you have to know it happens. Right. It's that same feeling. Right. It's no different. Right. It's the same thing. You feel like you're there's no special other thing. It's right. just it's just you know, that. it's just that. And and you know, there's there's it's a video game is a really good analogy for it because it's like a sense of completion. Yeah. It's a sense of getting it done. It's a sense of not quitting, but it's a sense of wonder and and discovery. Mm-hmm. You, you it's, it's as Feynman used to say, the pleasure of finding things out. Like you want to see what happens next. Right. Is there a final boss though? Um yeah. Have you experienced the final boss? No, she's horrible. <laughs> Nature is like, she's boy, wow. She's mean. Yeah. Yeah. She wants you dead. <laughs> yeah. You just keep going and going and going. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you be you think there is, and then you get up in your head, like, is is the is the idea that there is an answer an artifact of the way that human beings think about it. And people, you know, will smoke a joint and ask these questions all the time. It's a totally different thing. Yeah. When you're stone cold sober with a bunch of other people who are motherfuckers, like who think about this problem all day having that discussion, then mm-hmm. it's very real. Mm-hmm. And you have a perspective on it and you can do experiments to test whether or not you're right. Mm-hmm. You know, like my, my old advisor is doing an experiment at CERN right now that is setting a limit on the number of dimensions of reality. Jesus. And it's an experiment and he's actually doing that for real. How can you not be compelled by that? Right. And the equipment that's needed to do that, to test this very subtle thing. Yeah. is awesome. It's this huge stuff and he uses a ton of power and lots of engineers and vacuum chambers and shit. It's badass. And so it's easy to get caught in it because it's awesome. Yep. But you're caught in it nonetheless. I I guess let me ask, oh, again, like just to play devil's advocate, advocate here. Why do Why we? Why the hell does anybody need to play devil's advocate? Because who the fuck wants the devil's advocate? I, I, lo- I do love that. Fire I, that. I love attorney. that. I love that. Yeah, not not the attorney. Uh, but this is the same problem with devil's with devil's advocate. It's fun to be the devil's advocate. <laughs> it is. It's very fun. You're just being a dick to everyone around. You. That's fun. <laughs> Go ahead, um, Nick. But I feel like you do a good job answering these questions, right. so I think you're okay with it. Okay. Um, why does society need to understand that? Sure, you know this person. You they want to chase this awesome. Why is it something that, you know, needs to be understood right. from a societal level? Well, so the entire history of the human race is littered with guys like you saying that. And the way it works is that a bunch of people go try to understand the way something works. Right. Right. The sky, the air, water, wind, whatever. And a bunch of dudes like you ask why I'm not going to pay my tax dollars for that. Sure. You know, back to ancient Egypt, back to Mesopotamia. Right. And then sometimes you're lucky and they do. And you invent the water wheel or you invent the airplane or something. Sure. Yeah. And, and then usually, uh, the first couple of attempts fail and somebody gets it right. And most of the people who tried it initially are dead or retired and never going to get credit for it. Mm hmm. And then the world has it. And then the next generation of guys asking that question right. are asking it flying in the airplane, not fucking realizing. Yeah, it was all these like tinkerers. That the airplane yeah. <laughs> exists because guys like you were defeated. Yeah. Right. And, and now you, as, you assume that that's just how things are. And it's not. Things are the way they are because people sacrifice for real. Their lives, children, right. literally everything they have to get to move these things against the complaints of people who just don't see the point. Right. But it's a luxury 
to not see the point mm-hmm. that's built on the backs of all the people who did see the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be a jerk to you, but oh, like, no, 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 no. I it's, understand. it's, it's, it's a really big deal. And I think it has to do with, you know, uh, ostensibly, you know, the point of your podcast, of like building stuff and going through the trouble, you know, w- when you have a new idea and you want to build a new thing, everybody is going to fight you about it. Sure. There yeah. are people who don't want change. There are people who want the resources you have. Yeah. There are people who are uncomfortable with like, you know, somebody doing something that they perceive they can't. There are people just insecure about it. There are people who like are dicks and just want to see you fail. There are people who like want to see the reality TV of you struggling. And, and so you face all these obstacles. And then when you get done with something like that, your reward is often a bunch of people telling you how lucky you were. Right. Um, if you do a really great good, timing, if exactly, if you do a really good job at it, it will seem easy. Right. Yeah. I mean, Oh, we the, could have done this too. Yeah. That's right. I mean, it's yeah. the classic thing of like, you know, the kid going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art right. and looking at, you know, Monet and saying, I could have done that. Right. right? And yeah. it's like, yeah, but you didn't. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, the guy who did went through years and years and years of struggle to do something that he was so good at that it looks easy. Totally. You know, and I think it's a great point because, you know, and I don't mean t- to sound like such a prick. No, no, no. You know. I don't think, and I don't think you do. And, you know, reverting back to like just the educational piece or just, you know, whether it's building a business, going through school, I think a lot of times, you know, you're just kind of doing things and you don't really think about or think deeply about the why this is important. And it's important mostly because it's a building block for what's to come. And, you know, when we, when I remember like personally, when we got to like physics, I don't even think I was prepared. Of course, the teachers were a whole different story and they weren't good <laughs> at what they did, <laughs> but we weren't the building blocks weren't even there to understand or begin to understand you know what physics is or how it could be applicable or just h- how it how it resonates in real life i think that's really the issue with today's society is we don't understand you know we don't understand history number one we don't we don't know it we don't know why it's important why things like such as the airplane that you mentioned or video games that were created like were an amalgamation of all these different things and all these failures from people that you'll never hear about Right, we don't talk about those. We talk about the end well, result. It's, it's interesting too because all uh, you know, a lot of advances in technology and, and the understanding of the universe result in an easier life for future generations. Right, and future generations of humans often use that easier life to become more ignorant and care less. Right, you know, I saw these statistics today about young people. Like twenty percent of young people think the Holocaust was untrue, let alone like Armenian genocide. Jesus. Right, right. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, which I think 50% of people don't even know about. So, I mean, yeah, you know, it could be more. Yeah. So you have this strange feedback that you try to make the world a better place. And as a result, human beings seem to strive less in mm-hmm. some ways. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's such a luxury to not have to worry about history. It's such a luxury to not worry about food. It's such a luxury to not worry about right. being cold. It's such a luxury to not worry about being in danger. Yeah. And when you're in that bubble as we certainly are in the United States, you know, you look at Ukraine, you look at like, you know, Gaza or Israel, and it's very abstract, you know, because no matter what happens there, people seem to have the idea that Walmart will still be fully stocked. Sure. And, you know, as you gain perspective, you realize Walmart might not always be fully stocked. (laughs) Things could go really south and you can't just make whatever decision you want to make and expect everything to remain functional. Totally. The functionality of the world and this magical distribution system we have and the satellite communications, the internet and the instant everything 
was built on the backs of a lot of people sacrificing everything, often it gets very strong resistance to get it done, and it can be toppled trivially. Right. And, and getting it back is much harder than you think because it seems automatic now. It seems easy. seems to work easily. It's not easy. You know, it's not easy. Um, the guy who runs our IC design team, uh, Rick Barr, is the inventor of Wi-Fi. And Wi-Fi was a real struggle to get funding for and to do and to make, to figure out how to make radios on chips that would work quickly enough to do it, to standards, you name it. A lot of opposition. A lot of people saying, why would you do that? I have a wire. Yeah. Right? And that sounds ludicrous now because you know all of the ways yeah. that wireless internet, it goes way beyond just replacing a wire, right? Totally. But back, if you go back to the beginning, people would tell you you're nuts on all those arguments, right? And so Because they just don't know any better either they're, they're limited by their reality well and it would be one thing if the average human being would say yeah i just don't know any better i'm sorry i don't know either way but they don't instead you're intimidated about it and you say you shouldn't do that that's stupid i right. don't see any upside of that fuck you i'm not you're not using my money to do that did you get a lot of that uh, i my entire career is that so my, speaking of your career let's talk about you know posh mentioned like the application once you're out of college, what do you what do you do? What do you decide to like spend your time doing and applying all this knowledge that you've just gained? Well, I, so I was in graduate school, and um, two things happened: a huge political storm in in the physics community around the 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 team looking for something called the top quark, okay, which was a thing that we needed to find in order to confirm our mastery of something called the standard model which is the way that we think about the fundamental nature of matter okay big deal and you know and we were right about it and it was actually pretty cool it's like you have this mathematical model based on observations and it predicts these crazy things this this thing exists should exist if you look for it here but looking for it here turns out you have to build this huge machine to look for it and it's this crazy thing you never thought would exist and then you look for it and it's right there and it gives you incredible confidence about your model. But what it really means is that the human race has this incredible power to, to, to predict and understand reality. And that's safety. That's the light staying on. That's Walmart being stocked, right, for future generations in some way. Um, and so <laughs> you have all these really smart people looking at this. And they all feel that compulsion i was talking about earlier you know this this yeah. need to find out right and this 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 understanding of the beauty of that and, and and it's coupled with a bunch of other stuff too i mean you know at fermilab we were creating conditions that hadn't existed since the big bang like right there in this in this room and that's amazing and to be a part of that is an incredible rush i mean it's just it's it's, it's incredible it's great it's like being an olympic athlete it's ridiculously great and to get in that room, you have to train really hard your entire life. And you're then you're around all sorts of other people who you're competing with them, and that's horrible. But at the same time, you have, you know, camaraderie. You you are you are in this group and you're good enough to be in this group. And that's an incredible thrill. Like it's hard to describe that thrill. And you guys have probably everybody's probably been in a similar situation where you're on a team or something and you made the team and you're a part of the team. And just being on the team is great. And then and then Getting past that and thinking about excelling on the team is a whole other right. thing. 
Um, and people outside of that culture can talk about what that's like. Well, th why didn't you do this in this game? And they just have no understanding at all of how difficult it really is to exist in there. So you're, you're involved in that, and that's, that's on your mind, and, and it's super compelling. But you are also competing with one another, right? There are a limited number of jobs and a limited number of people who get on the big paper and a very limited number of Nobel Prizes. Right. Okay? So the politics uh, can get ferocious. And the politics are never worse than when the stakes are low. Right? These, you're not competing for billions of dollars here. In fact, in my experience now of meeting people who are competing for billions of dollars, the politics are much lower when there's a ton of money and people are getting paid well. When nobody's getting paid anything, it's just about prestige. It's vicious. So there is some of that. There's a big event. There are books about this event um, in the search for the top quark. And um, the guy who was my advisor was, was central in this thing. It was really dispiriting. to see. I didn't really want my life to be about that level of politics. And then... I was arranging a postdoc for myself at something called the Superconducting Super Collider in Texas. Congress canceled it. And that's when I decided to pull the ripcord. And I went and looked for a job and I wanted to change because this, you know, all of this conspired where the, the politics within the group of physicists and then the politics from Washington yep. conspired to really blow my illusion about the beauty of all of this. Right. And so I went to go look for a job, and I ended up in the games industry. Were you were you always interested? In, well, I guess I mean, well, the highest purpose of a computer is to play a game. Yep. And if you don't agree with that, I'm not your friend. So that makes sense. Yeah. No, I mean, it, so many things are actually games, right? <laughs> like if you think about it, I'm not even going to argue. It's just true. So um, it's yeah. Sometimes Microsoft Word feels like a game. Yeah. Game. No, I mean, social media feels like a game. Obviously, well, so cryptocurrencies a, the, a game the reason, solving puzzles. The reason that these things feel like a game is because they 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 succeed when they become you know when when it becomes a game, which is why it's the highest purpose of any computer to play a game. Do you think there's such thing as the gamification of everything? Like, do you think over time it's, everything it's, it's will a, be gamified? It's automatic. Yeah. It's automatic. If you were going to design a crypto wallet, yeah. Wouldn't you include elements of, of of that compulsion loop of a game in it? Right. Would you feel like a moron if you weren't? <laughs> yeah. So it's automatic. Mm -hmm. You don't have to think about it anymore. Um, so uh, I've been writing games for computers, you know, always, and so I thought it would be an easy way to, you know, to quickly do something while I was figuring out what else to do. I really wanted to go into airplane design because I started flying airplanes at the time. And so I thought it was a temporary job in the games industry, and it turned out not to be. So where were you working? Um, there was a startup called Looking, you know, called Blue Sky Productions, and they needed somebody to write a physics model for a car because um, people were starting to do like two and a half D games. And I showed up, and it was all these MIT guys, and they were writing a general three D engine. And the problem was in games up to that point, like in two D games you know, bouncing things off one another and having the dynamics of the game work out was pretty easy, and you could figure it out just you know, working through, but in 3d, it turns out it's, it's not just like twice as hard. It's like 50 times or hundred times harder. And so you actually need to know something about geometry and math and physics for real. And so I got addicted to that problem. I started writing physics engines and then mm -hmm. for a while I was like the only guy writing these physics engines where, you know, you could like throw stuff around walls and stuff you expect now, but it was like crazy in like the early nineties right. you'd like, you know, bounce a hand grenade around a, a corner and like hit a guy. 
I've never thought about this, how much of physics that had is to be done in games. Like, yeah, yeah. So video game. I wrote these physics engines and like the variable names and names for stuff, are st- like in modern physics engines, like in NVIDIA and stuff that you buy or yeah. Unreal, it's still the same names as these things I invented in wow. like, you know, back then. Because it was Now like AI the first. just, you could just tell it to do something. And it- no, you can't actually. It, it won't do that. Um, <laughs> it, it'll get there. I don't, I don't actually know, you know. Um, the way that large language models work is basically a giant actuarial table. And it's extremely effective with languages, for the most part, just because the bar for human beings understanding language is really low. Yeah. Like the human brain will interpret lots of different stuff as being sentence structure. Right. And you can exploit that. And so, and I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the way that the large language models work and the breakthrough was finding a way to uh, to cause them to not have feedback loops as they search through huge actuarial tables for what the next word should be in a sentence. Yeah, predictive. Yeah, yeah. and that's what it is. So it's really almost like a parlor trick. It's like it's a magic trick, and it seems like it makes sense. And that's why you see all these. It's so easy to trick the large language models into going crazy or saying dumb shit because it really is a parlor trick. It has no idea what it's saying. It's just what the probability of the next word is. And and I don't want to take anything away from it. It's an incredible breakthrough, and it's wild technology and i'm sure it's only going to improve over time no well i don't know you know there are a number of papers that have come out showing that more training on these models makes them worse interesting and more training on them actually makes them hallucinate more and so you know i think where we're going to get to is that it's a really useful tool for a lot of things it's not the end-all tool for everything Mm. it has a bunch of limitations it's random and a good friend of mine grady booch is a very famous programmer said you know any organization that plans on using large language models as part of their business needs to be comfortable with a random number generator inserted in their bottom line, which is true. And some businesses, that's okay. Seamus, what was the gaming world like um, when you entered it? Um, it was not widely understood by the general public that yeah. games were written by human beings Who did or, they think or, or that they weren't from Asia. Um, and so when you would tell people that you were a video game designer, they had no idea what you were saying. It was like you were a dog barking at them <laughs> and leaving, you know, a prestigious institution and becoming a game designer was not, uh, was not seen as a good move. And where were you at at the family. time? Where were you at for grad school? Fermilab. I was at, at, at something called the university's research association, Fermilab, which is like Harvard and Tufts and. You know, it was a big deal. It was a very prestigious thing. I was like in a really lucky place. So how did you end up at Microsoft after that? Oh, it was a long, 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 long story. After yeah, that. A long story. So I made all these games with the MIT guys that were really successful and really influential. And it was lucky that I was there and I had the opportunity to do that. And so, you know, I had this great opportunity. And, and, and it's great because I go talk to, uh, you know, game devs now and they have this mistaken impression, you know, that I'm like, you know, legendary revered guy because I, you know, cause we were the first. And so when you're the first at something, you have this advantage that you seem like, you know, incredible genius at it, but we were just figuring it out as we went. And we had this idea about emergent gameplay in 3d that if we made 3d worlds and just sort of set them up to work a certain way, it would seem to every player that it was their own world and every player would have a different, story about how they got through it and it worked out and that's normal now but you know in 1992 that was fucking weird like nobody ever thought of that before and when we tell people that like we would go to electronic arts and say we're gonna make a game like this they'd be like no you need to work on madden 92 (laughs) which i did 
Um, <laughs> I wrote the ball physics code for like Madden 92 or something. I can't remember what. Um, when Madden was still overhead view. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What is yeah. that? I mean, what do you do you have to like sit and like rigorously study football to do that? Or is it just the theories that and laws of physics that apply to before you anything? made a podcast? Did you sit and rigorously study audio engineering? No. Okay, so it was the same. Basically, you just same figured thing. out. You just as go you for go. it. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And you make it or not? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're you're making games, and then yeah, how does that ultimately lead to you? And yeah, so so I made a game that did really well for the company that earned way more money than they ever earned before, and I wanted to make another one in this series, and a business thing happened that I now understand really well, but at the time was totally new to me, which was that the investors in the company brought in new management because the company was successful, mm. which is, you know, now I'm just like, Oh my God, it's the classic venture capital mistake. Right. Oh my gosh. Now it's made money. I got to get rid of these clowns. And then it crashes because mm. those clowns were the ones who made the money. Yep. So, um, that that happened. They brought clowns in, and I wasn't willing to work for the clowns, so I left. Had you made money at this point? Uh, no. Personally, uh, no. Back then, um, you weren't you know you weren't paid anything for yeah. working in games, and I think that this game sold like uh, hundreds of thousands of copies and made tens of millions of dollars for the company. And I, I don't think we really had a royalty agreement that covered any of those cases. And none of us thought of that because again, like I keep on saying, you know, we were just, we were just so happy to get the opportunity to work on games because it was such a weird thing to have a job working on games. Yeah. It wasn't like now there weren't conferences. Like it, right. it was like a new thing. You're working on something new for the world. People are like experiencing it for the first time. It's exciting to see. It's kind of the, probably the same reason you were, uh, you know, uh, attracted to like physics. It's like this. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so, and, and the reason I was attracted to games is because it was like the confluence of the physics stuff and also the, the creative music stuff at the same time. Right. Super compelling. And so we just happy to do it. So no, there's no, there's no money. And I, so I, I was looking for a job and I got recruited by uh, DreamWorks, which at that time was not yet formed. Mm. They were trying to put it together and it's Katzenberg, Spielberg, Steven Katzenberg, and Katzenberg and, Geffen. and Dave Geffen were trying to work a deal out and find their, you know, Saudi money or whatever. And so I went out to LA and, uh, um, and that's when you moved from, you were still in New Mexico. I was in Boston, Boston, I was in Boston. Yeah. I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, um, uh, yeah, Harvard square, all that stuff. Cool. Um, I was there for 10, 10 years. I really, I really miss Cambridge. It was cool. I lived in, I lived next to Cambridge in a town called Somerville, mm-hmm. Somerville. And, uh, I, when I was an undergraduate, I turned left and went to Tufts and I was a graduate student. I turned right. Anyway. So we, um, we, uh, came to, I mean, I came, I came to LA, I talked to DreamWorks and a bunch of other companies and eventually decided on dreamers because it seemed exciting and new and what was the job though was it video games still yeah it was video games it was to be a producer of video games and they're trying to start a video games division of the company and you know that every time i would come and visit the corporate office would be different and they'd be like oh this is steven spielberg say hi (laughs) and then i came and steven spielberg was like our boss did he and know anything about video games? He's a huge gamer. He knew everything about video games. On his desk, remember back in the day, you'd have those plastic boxes with with 
floppy disks in them yeah. with all your yeah. software. Yep. Yep. This huge, at his desk in Amelon, his big fancy movie office, he had a computer with a huge plastic case full of every game he'd ever heard of. Played them all, knew them all. Wow. So he was great. And um, it's like the Rolodex. I saw someone in our office had like the OG Rolodexes. I thought like I died and was born back in like 1980. You know, the thing about the Rolodex, it's it's <laughs> a lot like, um, you know, looking through reference books is that you're looking for somebody in the Rolodex and you'll see all the people around them and it'll remind you of stuff. Right. We don't get that now. No, I love that's, it. But that's important because yeah. you'll think of ideas you never would have thought of. Totally. That's true. Anyway. Yeah. And, you know, and it's fun. To, you sort them through. Yeah. And, and as you're doing it, you're like, oh, I should call Dave. Right, right. Why haven't I called Dave? Yeah. yeah. No, it's totally. a great. It's a really cool thing. Anyway, so, all right, enough old guy stuff. Um, uh, so Spielberg. Uh, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah. And so um, I started working on um, a Jurassic Park game there, which became this game Trespasser, which became a huge failure. So hold on. I always thought that these video game studios, separate from the movie studios, were creating the games and just licensing the IP from these film studios, but DreamWorks was actually internally creating the games. Yeah, it's, it's happened in every possible way, and and and, wow. and it goes back and forth. You know, yeah. there are trends in the video game industry like everything else. Sometimes all the development happens in house at publishers, and then it all becomes third party, and then it's a mix. Mm. And sometimes, you know, you have uh, intellectual property coming from film studios being licensed by game companies. Other times you have film studios trying to license their IP to, right. to game studios. Sometimes yeah. you have um, video game studios licensing their IP to to film and television production houses, like The Last of Us, which yep. is you know, a big hit now. Right. So mm -hmm. um, it goes every way. But back then, this was all, none of this, it's all a pipe dream. So DreamWorks was going to try to make games. And again, these are all firsts. Yep. This is before we knew all this stuff now. So I'm there and it's like, okay, what are we going to do? And I so I... You know, I wanted to make a game with a true open world, which, as I said before, would have this story experience for the player where they'd feel they did it themselves. So if we had, it was a very experimental game called Trespasser, and it came out kind of at exactly the wrong time, the dawn of 3D accelerators. And it was an open world game where we drew the outside using procedural animation. It was brilliant, but incompatible with 3D accelerators. So all of the hardcore guys who would normally buy our games and be super excited had bought these accelerators and our game weren't ran worse on it. And there were a bunch of problems. This and is I was, the nineties. This is the, yes, the nineties. And mm -hmm. I was, and I, this is the NV one first accelerators. And I was really, you know, I was a young manager and I just exited this, you know, Cambridge and the group of people who had around to support me to make sure the game shipped and all this kind of stuff. And I was creating a new game studio it was in Hollywood. I never lived here before. And it was a little, Hollywood shit going on. I fucked up everything and did some stuff right. Um, and I mean, I guess now this game is kind of a cult game, but mm -hmm. at the time it was a disaster. I got fired. But From DreamWorks. I, yeah. But I had met Bill Gates. Or not really fired, but I just, you know, I was shown the door and I went through it. Mutually uh, or a mutual decision. The Seamus, that's the door. And I would love to see you just yeah. walk through it yeah. and never come back. You know, it'd be great, baby. with you <laughs> outside that door. Right. <laughs> Um, but I was like, you know, 28 or 29. And so, you know, don't give away that age. You're like, ah, no numbers, no numbers. Cause now it's making it easy on the audience. It's okay. When I say them, it's fine. Gotcha. Okay. I can't say them. I want you to make sure that you understand. Understood. So, um, I went to Bill Gates who I had met as he was an investor in DreamWorks or DreamWorks Interactive. One of the, and he was interested in video games too. He had come for a tour. Okay. And I had shown him 
our big open world physics engine and it had you know it had uh real-time foley running from the physics system all stuff it's again this stuff is all normal now but like it was the only place on earth that had ever run before <laughs> like when we were showing him mm-hmm. and really bill impressed. gates wasn't bill gates as he is today was he in the 90s well he was, he was a, he was a different bill gates i mean yeah. he was he was very famous but you know the culture had not yet shifted to where when you became that famous there were like all sorts of people attacking you for weird shit right. you may or may not have done well, social media wasn't around so yeah and so um you know and, and trespasser actually came out right at the dawn of online games journalism right. and so i got the first trolls and the first death threats and right. like had to like call the cops and stuff it was it was really it was really tough anyway so bill had come saw it he said you should work at microsoft and i liked him a lot and i knew who he was um you know because he was i mean he'd been a harvard guy and and you know he hired a bunch of physics guys and so we knew him and so i sent him an email it's like okay well it's <laughs> need a job and so he forwarded to somebody and i got an interview at microsoft for um and i ended up being the program manager of entertainment graphics for windows okay so i went up to my little nondescript office you know with no window at microsoft and was a program manager which i had no idea what it was and i felt like a huge failure in life and i remember i showed up in seattle on the first day of like a hundred straight days of rain in the winter my dog and i rented a car and the wind the electric window broke in the car so the rain is coming in the window and my dog's unhappy and i was crying and i was just like my life's over mm. i'm never gonna make a game again this is all over but did, was this like level of like oh like maybe like prestige of working at microsoft at the time that made you feel a little bit better or no no again i was just trying to survive i huh. just didn't want to be homeless it wasn't a lifestyle yeah um microsoft yeah. lives this was like this was like you know imagine how you used to think before instagram man like you know yep. you gotta you gotta get your head around that yeah i'm trying to rewind <laughs> it's it. not gonna last forever um I mean, microsoft was still a big deal though in that time yeah it was it, it, it would have been seen as extremely weird to take a picture of your legs back then <laughs> <Yeah>. okay <laughs> um yeah and you know microsoft was beloved at that time like uh in seattle it was yeah. like this amazing success story and it was just turning mm. just turning and so i you know thought i was going to just toil away at obscurity forever and figure out what to do with my life because games was over for me because i had failed it was sad it's yeah. weird so so yeah so between that and when you start get, getting back into games are you just kind of you're going through the motions you're just like working at this job and then what happens well, so I had, as the program manager of entertainment graphics for Windows, I had access to all of the new video cards and all the new video technology coming out for the PC. Mm. And, you know, the same companies that I've been, you know, kind of unintentionally burned by so hard on Trespasser were learning from the, the first generation of video cards for the PC were terrible for 3D video cards. They were learning from their mistakes and it was getting better. And in the intermediate time, PlayStation 1 had been released. And if you remember PlayStation 1 from your distant childhood, remember that everything was like weird and warpy on it, yeah, all yeah. 3D, right? Mm-hmm. That's because it had linear texture mapping, so everything was uh, in, looked incorrect. So they had to do all sorts of tricks to make sure that the fact that the texture maps warped wasn't too offensive because it was like this wild, like, you know, acid trip world, right? Mm-hmm. So Sony announced PlayStation 2 while I was at Microsoft that they'd begun developing it. And they had an ad that it was so powerful it could run Excel 
and it was going it could replace the PC and they were going they were going to let it run Linux. Hmm. And I looked at that and I thought I'm still in my depressed state like I'm over I'm an idiot. I've been proven to be a, a jackass kind of thing. I had this huge, you know, opportunity with Steven Spielberg and I blew it. And <laughs> I look at it and I'm thinking, okay, like hey, fuck you Sony, like yeah. all of the games for PlayStation are developed on the PC. And then there are tools that then cram it into the PlayStation to run. So all the 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 tools are running all running on PCs. And these graphics cards that are coming out are going to blow away the PlayStation 2 graphics performance you're talking about because you've got a bunch of Japanese engineers who are like pushing a very Japanese philosophy, a very sort of like video game philosophy of graphics, whereas the uh, the card manufacturers for the PC are following sort of the academic his path of computer graphics like RenderMan from Pixar, advanced lighting models that's really beautiful. Mm. And and so we're going to destroy you. The problem is, even though all of the tools are on the PC and all of the graphics tools are on the PC and probably the tools they were using to design the chips in the PlayStation 2 were on the PC, mm-hmm. um, and all of the graphics chips that are going to come up for the, for the PC are going to be superior to what you're proposing, every PC is different. Everybody builds their own PC or buys them from Dell and all have a different configuration. Mm-hmm. And so no piece of software can be as finely tuned to exploit every single ounce of performance and to be consistently great as you can on a console because every console is identical. So the great advantage of PlayStation 1 was that everyone could overcome those horrible texture mapping problems and, it, and, but, and every gamer would experience the same way. Whereas on the PC, and I've been shipping PC games, you had to spend a huge amount of time on compatibility and your game had to be tuned for the least common denominator system. So you could never make your game super awesome because it had to run on the average dude system or they get really pissed off. It was mm. a big complaint on trespasser actually was that the requirements are too high. Yeah. And so I got to thinking like, you know, we could cream Sony and fuck them on this Excel thing. Um, with my Microsoft hat on now, mm. Um, if we so, just, so video games hadn't been really discussed, like it wasn't something that Microsoft was thinking about or focused on at all. It's so odd to have this conversation because, <laughs> because yeah, absolutely. Like the idea of Microsoft doing video games would be like having a conversation right now about Facebook doing like gynecological products. <laughs> right. It was, it's completely bizarre. Like yeah, yeah. why, what? Yeah. It truly was. Yeah. The fact that it makes sense to you now and that that seems odd to you makes me very proud in a way. Um, yeah, it was crazy. So so this thinking took a minute. I was like, all right, well, if we made a platform that was consistent so that every game could take advantage of the full power of these new chips, we could cream them. And so I wrote a proposal, said that, and I knew Bill Gates, so I could send it to Bill. Uh, because I also knew that there were, because you know, you I get all this information. I was going to Microsoft. There are people who are thinking of making um, a tablet, not like an iPad. They, mm-hmm. they were not thinking of this like iPad. Um, it was just like this touchscreen tablet that would sit on your refrigerator, 
and it would tell you when you need to go to the store to get right. stuff. Yeah, which I is like that. a modern day smart fridge. No. Yeah. Do they have that? Yeah. But you're thinking of a modern day smart fridge. This wasn't as clever as that. Yeah. This was a, the dumb version. Of, and and so I was I started to go to invite myself to meetings and be like, we shouldn't do this dumb thing. If we're going to make a device, we could make a PC optimized for DirectX. So this is Microsoft technology. just like trying to think of like moonshot kind of ideas that no, are you, somewhat you're th- related. You're thinking this is you're thinking this is organized in some way. No, this is one guy <laughs> thinking that this is something Microsoft should do and inviting himself to meetings and telling people shit they don't want to hear. Uh. You said you asked before why would we do this? Every single motherfucker there, especially like the mid-level management guys who had a nice life, why would I change this life? They didn't want to hear about a new device. Yep. Right. They wanted to make their numbers making ma- making mice. Mm. They wanted to make their numbers, okay, selling webcams. Mm. Right. They didn't want to hear that we needed to make a new device. So I was I was unwelcome. Right. But but I had religion on this because as I thought about it and as I told my friends about it, I told I told my friend Kevin first, as soon as I, I wrote the proposal on a plane. And I told my friend Kevin about it. We could make a box that just runs DirectX, which is where Xbox comes from. And I got religion. And, and I didn't have any career there. I'd been there like three months. So I had nothing to lose. And all these guys were like, they'd come and go. Kevin came and go. He's a good friend. But, you know, and, and other guys who helped us out, when it looked like it might damage their career, or it was uncool, they would like vanish. Yep. So I, I had a lot of like flying into battle and the people like, right. where's my wingman? That was okay. That's how new ideas are. And um, at the end, they stuck with me. And, and so, you know, but but nobody wanted to hear this, and it wasn't like an initiative of Microsoft. This mm-hmm. was this was a hijacking, and the fact that I knew Bill Gates mm-hmm. was the the card I had. But but explain and let's go a little deeper on this because I'm sure there's a lot of folks that are listening that may not have been you know that are not in the gaming world, but they're in other industries and they're at companies where they believe there's an idea that they have and they want to disrupt and they want to you know, bring the new ideas and new initiatives and new, whatever it may be, new technologies. What, you know, talk to us a little bit deeper about your persistency, about being told no, about answering the why when you knew the why was, what do you mean? You know, of course we have to do this. Like this is a no brainer in my head. How do you persuade them? Right. It's one thing to know. And it's one thing to persuade the other party who is a decision maker, right. Who is the money who's going to actually bring the project to life. Perhaps to do this well um the first thing is to not fool yourself and uh, it's another interesting Feynman quote if i said don't fool yourself you're the easiest one to fool mm-hmm. you got to make sure that the idea you have is actually good right and we were i was lucky because i had just come from you know computer games from pc games and even though I hadn't made money, I had made the company a fuck ton of money on a bunch of games. And I, right. and my, all my friends who were developers had also, the industry started to make just a lot of money, like meaningful money on a Microsoft scale. So it was a good business. Right. So, and I knew that intuitively, right? I also knew about 3D rendering intuitively because I had been one of the first people to write 3D rendering and physics packages for those games. So I knew exactly what Sony was doing, and I knew all about the hardware because I'd gone through this traumatic experience with Trespasser and how the hardware worked in writing drivers. And I had written drivers, so I knew about how it all worked. And I knew how much money PlayStation was making. So I knew this was a good bet. Okay, that's the first key. Make sure the idea you're pitching isn't some whack job thing that's a personal project of yours or some kind of therapy for you to feel better about yourself. Mm -hmm. 
because it's easy to think of the story of me after trespasser doing xbox as being like a redemption thing or or the therapy thing i needed to make my life right and i wasn't thinking about it that way at the time i got overtaken all of my other and this was great for me emotionally but all of my worries and concerns and stuff got obliterated once i realized that there was this opportunity here's this huge market and Sony, which we now think of inseparably from PlayStation, PlayStation was still a small division in Sony. Sony was a TV and radio right. company and music company. Mm-hmm. And this insurgency had come out of Sony Music and created this, this video game console. When everyone inside Sony told those guys, you know, the, the, the Seamus of Sony mm-hmm. got told, Nintendo owns this market. You're an idiot. You're going to lose all our money. And there are books about this. It's, mm-hmm. it's weirdly analogous. Mm-hmm. And they persevered and created this business and it started to grow. And, and I was watching and you could see that it was growing faster than the rest of Sony's business. And the reports were starting to come out. And so we knew that it was good. Also, Microsoft is a company that can scale to compete with somebody like Sony. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, you could... Okay, so so those, that's, that's important. Okay, And did you actually have these methodical thoughts in your head or is this just you answering the question by looking back at what actually happened i actually had those thoughts in my head okay. I mean, I'm a, this is part of the great it was a strate- strategic no this is thing. it was physics i was thinking about the problem like a physicist mm-hmm. and this is part of the reason that i encourage people to, to study physics it just it can apply to everything the part of the reason that I uh, that that I decided to study physics was because you don't have to memorize anything; you can derive everything from first principles from scratch, more or less. Mm-hmm. I'm terrible at memorization. No. And so, what you're really learning with physics is a way to think that's hugely effective, right? Because you're trying to investigate things that are really subtle, and humans are bad at thinking about it. And so, you get a toolkit lets you overcome it like humans are emotional you want to believe this thing is going to be true but nature doesn't care so how do you deal with that how do you deal with that bias well you you have a method methodology uh, you have a methodology for thinking you have a tool set for thinking that helps you to overcome that human bias right and that methodology the thought process is what i was using for xbox Mm -hmm. okay so that's how i was thinking about it and then to then the thing I had to develop was how do you then sell that to an organization? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So you have to understand your organization. Microsoft at that time was a company whose goal was still to put a PC on every desk in the world. You get an award, the, the ship it award everybody have in their office with a different sticker for every project you worked on. And it said, you know, the dream of a desk on every, of a computer on every desk in the world, which seems silly now, mm-hmm. but it was not silly then. It was not the case that, that it was still not happened. It had not happened yet. So it was a software company with a grandiose mission. And I understood that if you could make a case that this was a great business and it was a software business compatible with Microsoft's other business, um, that you could probably sell it in. And the other thing was that the old school guys at Microsoft, the founders of Microsoft, who had built it from like, you know, a garage into at that time the most profitable history in the profitable company in the history of the human race i sat at um product reviews next to this guy john devon a wonderful guy who was running office at the time and i had started a project that was going to lose five billion dollars and john devon sitting next to me at the product review 
was running literally the most profitable business in the history of the human race. I was thinking of the town. The like, contrast, wow. yeah. Yeah, I'm an asshole. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> so you, you have to understand your audience. Yeah. And, and so we went to the old school guys, you know, because I knew Bill and the founders, Rick Rashid and the, the older guys who were above the middle management layer. There's a huge layer of middle management at the time at Microsoft who were multimillionaires yeah. because they just worked there a while. And Xbox and, would have died and, and they were, at that level. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They would have killed it because of the thing you said. Why would we do this? Why change? Right. You know, so well, They're comfortable. But, but Bill and these guys were like, fuck yeah, let's jam and let's go. Let's go. Let's kill them. Let's go. Right? And that's how I was. <laughs> is that how he was? Is that how he is? Um, he's He loves a challenge. He like He wants to. He's very competitive. And if he wants to do something, he wants to do it better than anybody else, faster than anybody else. And he believes that consumers will buy something because it's the best in the world if you can do it. Mm -hmm. And it's it's great. It's great. He's also a really sweet guy. He's a huge nerd. Um, you know, and um, you know, people who know Bill well are always completely flabbergasted by all the shit people say about Bill because it's just, you know, yeah. not who he is. And, Anyway, um, it's like the guy puts forward a plan to literally give away all of his wealth to needy causes and tries to solve the world's biggest causes and just takes nothing but shit about it. It's hilarious. <laughs> like, okay, what the hell else do you do? Should he be sawing body parts off? Like, what do you do? Yeah. In any case, uh, so he took a bet on me. He, he said, like, I mean, like, so you guys sit down, you meet. I mean, is that what it No, know. it took a long time. He was like very skeptical, wanted to know more. He wanted to prove it. You know, we made prototypes. We went through a long process. Other groups at Microsoft came forward and said, we should make a game console because we know better. And, and it was very frustrating. It was a frustrating couple of years, but we eventually got it done. And the team grew in an awkward way. And I learned about politics. And I learned about all sorts of things. And it was a great education. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Bill and you know, to some extent, Balmer and these other guys—they really appreciated the entrepreneurial spirit, and they wanted it back again. You know, Microsoft had lost that in some mm -hmm. ways; they wanted it back, and then Microsoft and, and Xbox became hugely popular within Microsoft. So I found myself, you know, emceeing the company meeting, like forty thousand people at a stadium. I mean, it was basically its own company within the company. Yeah, yeah, and it was a brand people would be proud on. This is when Microsoft was facing antitrust and right. mm -hmm. Google and Microsoft suddenly has switched to being evil. Right. And it was a thing people could be proud of. So the timing was great. Did you enjoy what you were doing? I loved it. Every, like, I mean, every day it was a new no. challenge. Every other day I'd drive home crying and thinking I wanted to drive into the ocean. Because of the rain? No, because of politics, because of people doubting your idea, people doubting you, ad hominem attacks. Like, who is this new guy? This guy's a failure. Look at his game. All that mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. At what point did, it, did they start coming around and being like, wow, this guy actually knows what he's talking about? They never do. <laughs> really? They, they never do. You, What happens is years later, you hear them on some other podcast saying, <laughs> yeah, he had it right. Oh, yeah. I know Seamus. I was there. Yeah. yeah, yeah that guy's what, a genius. <laughs> that's right. And that's, that's what happens. So the, I have this experience of like people who actively tried to stand in the way of it and tried to shoot me down again and again and again. I'll hear about them. I'll see them interviewed somewhere and they'll say, yeah, it was great. It was such a great team. We were all together. And I'm like, wow. Well, okay. Yeah. Right. Cool. Good way to rewrite history. I wish you guys wrote as good of a game as you did the it's history. Okay. It's all right. I mean, you know, the thing is that um, the older I get, the more I realize, and that's quite old. As you, point you don't out. have to give me numbers. It's okay. Um, just, you know, honesty and compassion. And just love of your fellow man is the most important thing in the world. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and the amount of trouble that could have been saved if people had just got over their shit as I look back is incredible. So I think, you know, setting an example of not being that way is super important. I know there's probably a millennial question too, but, uh, or mindset, but okay. He looks millennial. You're not looking so millennial. Thank anymore, you. But okay. Thank you. Okay. Go ahead. Same age. He's older than me. Two like weeks. two weeks. It's aging. Well, all right. So <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Good skincare. Um, you know, I hope at that point that you had financial success because you had created this, obviously after many years, Xbox was and is obviously a huge success. Um, were you at all, I mean, did, again, was there this moment of realization of like, finally, <laughs> you know, like, I know you were in survival mode, you just didn't want to die, but did it ever exceed that? Well, there's a, there's a, when you're driven by projects and goals and, you know, it becomes like, it feels like trench warfare. I mean, you're in this fight for your life right? and it's about your idea and it's about succeeding at the thing that you want to see happen in the world and changing something in the world. And so realizing that I could buy a Ferrari was, I didn't even, didn't even, didn't even occur to me. The things that really mattered, like when I showed up with Kevin at the Tokyo Game Show, uh, at the subway station where the show was happening, mm -hmm. Daiba, um, and we walked off the subway. We were hungover, and we had to give some—I had to give a talk or a speech or something, or and, and uh, maybe in front of the whole conference. I can't remember. And uh, got out of the subway, and somebody had plastered the whole station in Xbox logos. And it was so emotional. I fell on my knees, you know, because it was like it was real. And it was this the logo was a thing my friend Horace drew in green because he didn't have any other color marker left. And here it was like in Japan. And that was that meant more to me than money by a lot. Yeah. And and it's so, yeah, so it's. It's ne never really been my mindset. I'm sure I could be a lot wealthier if I cared about it. I just don't really care about yeah. It. yeah so with the launch of xbox uh i can't remember but did was was there like a like a game that was unique to xbox that came out with it was it halo or that came later yes it was halo it was halo yes son it was halo so you so you created that simultaneously <laughs> no that was bungie so bungie uh so bungie was a company that was in chicago it was bought by microsoft um when uh when microsoft wanted to show more diversity in their games group. So they had a games publisher, which was like the redheaded stepchild of like software at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. It was a separate campus. <laughs> they mainly were trying to do kids games and like games for education. And they, uh, a guy took it over who really wanted to build it into a big publisher like Electronic Arts. And so one of the things he did was buy Bungie, who were famous on, on uh, Macintosh. We're doing three-dimensional games on Macintosh and multiplayer games on Macintosh. Marathon is mm -hmm. a, if you look that up, it's a, mm -hmm. they're you know, really big step forward in multiplayer games, online multiplayer games. It was a Macintosh game. And he moved them to Redmond and gave them a special office and all sorts of like special perks um, in order to create uh, a publishing business for Macintosh also. Um, because again, at the time with all the antitrust and everything, the idea of, Microsoft doing things that weren't just on Windows was really attractive. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they come over <laughs> and they have this idea for what becomes Halo that's going to be a big Macintosh game. 
And along comes this redheaded asshole <laughs> with his fucking video game console idea. Yeah. And next thing they know, they have to put it on this video game console. Interesting. Mm. So uh, that happens. How long are you, you know, on the Xbox team? And what ultimately happens where you leave? Um, well, so I ended up, in, you know, if you look back through media, I ended up kind of unintentionally fronting Microsoft for a while, right? And it was really stressful and the politics were tough and Xbox launched and it was successful. But the games that came out were the same games as on other platforms or worse. Mm. And I had learned a lot about business and I had really started to think about the problems of, and I, you know, I got my confidence back and I started to think, okay, well, I understand about business now to some extent. And I see why it was hard for me to get some game ideas funded. I see why Trespasser failed. And I saw that, and it was great because I, I suddenly saw Trespasser not just as my failure, but as the failure of the company at DreamWorks to get their shit together and support somebody making something that could have been a pivotal game, like a really important game. And it helped me a lot. And when I realized that, I realized that probably what I needed to do next was to start a game publisher. And so I got obsessed with that idea. And so I co-founded a finance company uh, with Kevin Backus and another guy who we had met. And we went to raise money to just start financing games. And I wanted to build a publisher because I now knew that I could manage thousands of people and I could deal with big PL at an international level. And I knew all the publishers and I knew, you know, how the sausage was made and that it wasn't ma some magical shit. Did you enjoy that like aspect of it, the operational aspect of it? Yeah. I loved doing that. Uh, you know, I loved having a lot of employees and I loved, you know, um, helping the team to succeed in that way. And I found that I could, it's painful, <laughs> but I found that I was able to do it. And, what, what kind of a leader are you? Um, I am a, you know, I, I think, I think, I think of myself as being a kind of benevolent dictator type guy. Um, but you know, one of my board members, uh, is, uh, is Ed Catmull. He's a really nice guy. And he told me that I remind him so much of Steve jobs, which mm. I think of it as being really negative. <laughs> like, <laughs> so maybe I'm like more of an asshole than I thought. So there, that's what I, yeah. Okay. You know, you, you have to build an organization that takes care of everybody. And in, and in the business that I'm in, which is very secret, but you know, it's true in games also, you create an engine that, that conjures value out of the vacuum, right? It's, it's guys sitting in seats People, people working and thinking of ideas. And if all these men and women are happy and feel safe and secure, then they will conjure a huge amount of value from nothing, from nothing. But if there's politics and they feel insecure, then they're not going to be creative and you're not going to create as much value. It's inefficient. Right. It's bad business. Okay. Right. So good business in creative spaces like this is to keep everybody feeling good and safe. Right. So you have to build a culture that does that. But to do that, there has to be a knife that cuts away the things that aren't working. Mm. And as the CEO, you are that knife. Mm. And so you have to have a very hard edge and everybody has to understand where that is. Got it. And so 
you have to, and if you're, I'm a really sensitive person and I really try to lead with kindness and you have to get your head around the fact that, that sometimes kindness, often kindness requires you to be super hard like that and for you to be an asshole. Right. You have to be the asshole on behalf of the team. And, you, uh, but it also, I feel like takes a mutual understanding from that team that there's a reason why you are like it's coming the from way a you are good place right yeah right right i mean if they think you're genuine just like a dickhead i think that's a different story than we know why he is this way he is trying to achieve yeah a goal for the company and to make our lives easier better you know and that's a, a big advantage that i have over you know people who are up and coming is that yeah. i have a very public history of all of these things and so when i get salty and when i yell at people and when i move things around it's really easy for everybody to to feel like okay he must know what he's doing yeah but you know if you're a, a you know a new manager coming up it's harder how often do you actually know what you're doing <laughs> never does anybody yeah yeah no no I, no that was you, I mean I like, was expecting. here's the thing um you know what you're doing when you don't even have to think right um when you have to consider what you're doing and really try to figure it out that's when you don't know what you're doing right and it's okay to not what you not know what you're doing it's fine it's exciting even and the key characteristic that i believe differentiates effective great leaders from not effective and great leaders is understanding that your value as a manager is your track record and ability to deal with not knowing what you're doing and succeed bad leaders freak out i don't know what i'm doing and it crashes good leaders i don't know what i'm doing Let's get the right people here. Let's figure this out. Let's make good decisions. And if they're not right, let's correct quickly. Mm -hmm. And let's succeed in the unknown. Right. That is the job. All right. So talk to us a little bit about what you're up to today. What are you working on? Uh, well, I, I am building a uh, an old kingdom bakery on the Giza Plateau um, in Egypt. Um, I am developing uh, methodologies for um, hydroponic um production of cacao trees mm. okay um to try to uh <laughs> where, where did they where did these ideas come from this is just hobbies they grew from hobbies <laughs> okay. uh, and uh, and i and i and i run a i run a company in deep deep stealth mode in okay. pasadena okay cool so yeah. you just yeah you, you you're you have the company but you have all these other interests you're pursuing at the, in the yeah meantime. and a lot, a lot of them come out of the company the company is you know it's a company that survives like a lot of the other things we've talked about through all this on the creation of value from nothing and mm -hmm. so uh you know the job is to keep everybody intellectually and creatively nourished and moving forward and so we do a lot of side projects and out of these side projects grow these weird things that's awesome you, you talked about moving from venice to pasadena why did you make that move why did i make that move uh because i wanted to buy a house and at that time, the house prices in Pasadena were half of Venice. It's like now flip, no? That was it, yeah. Pasadena's a great place. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. James, this has been so much fun. I wish we could talk for hours because I feel like there's so much to unpack and you know talk to you about. But we can't thank you enough for you know coming on the show and just sharing not only your story, but all this wisdom and all this, you know, these like crazy awesome things you've accumulated and acquired uh, along the way and uh, you know can't wait to see what comes next with the business uh, out of stealth mode eventually hopefully so we can know what you're what you're working either on either it'll but. crash and you'll never hear of it again <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it'll be a big deal we'll see it's been a pleasure uh, and for me as well thanks guys thank, thank you, you.